The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections this November. Please text the word voter to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. And don't forget to follow I Am a Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. That's voter to 26797. Also, a quick insider tip. We wanted to make sure you've checked out a new podcast from our friend. And girl crush and partner and I'm a voter. Sarah Riff called Having It All and Other Lies, where she hosts really fun and enlightening conversations about redefining success and happiness with badass women like Carla Welch, Jen Atkin, and Jennifer Fisher. It's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Mandana Diani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am A Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends and we're constantly sending each other inspiring stories about people around the world who are doing incredible things. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So after months and months of research into these accidental activists, we created our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. This week, we speak with the extraordinary Kate Roberts. She founded the Maverick Collective to develop impactful projects in the developing world and engaged Melinda Gates, Dr. Motsepe, and the Crown Princess of Norway as co-chairs. She previously served as Senior Vice President of Corporate Partnerships and Philanthropy at PSI, where she has led several highly successful public initiatives, including YouthAids and Five and Alive. Earlier this year, she launched Ikigai Company, a private consulting practice and Puissant, a social enterprise startup that is building a global movement for female sexual wellness. Kate began her career in marketing and advertising before diving into this work. She's an artist and an interior designer. She speaks five languages and has received every prestigious award for her achievements, and she's intimidatingly cool. (laughs) This episode is so special to me because Kate is also the woman who took me on my first trip to Africa as global health ambassador, focusing on HIV AIDS, and gave me the confidence and tools to be an advocate. She's just one of those people you meet who changes your life forever. I also just love this episode so much because it really shows the incredible on the ground innovative activism Deborah has been doing for decades, work I didn't even know about as her friend. There's also this moment when Kate references how some introductions change your life. And meeting Kate, sitting through this conversation was one of those moments. Maybe it's my expertise and background in marketing, but just listening to her story and how she leveraged it to create the change that she did. I was jumping out of my chair, giddy, that this is the woman I want to be. I want to be a maverick. And this woman is just insanely extraordinary. We know this episode's a little long, but I'm so excited for you all to hear what might be one of the craziest and most informative interviews we've done. And now it's our greatest honor to introduce you to the brilliant dissenter, the one and only Kate Roberts, the women's health maverick. I am very excited to have Kate here because I've known Kate for me 11, 11, 12, yeah, Yeah. over 11 years. She got me involved 
with uh, PSI, which is Population Services International, a, a global health organization for which she is the senior vice president. Can I just interject with the fact that based on my research, there's 9,000 employees, 65 countries, and an annual turnover of $600 million? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. Um, so, so, Kate, why don't we start with you just telling the story about how you and I met? Yes. Well, I remember it like it was yesterday, although we've had lots of adventures since. Thank you, both of you, for the very lovely introduction, by the way. I was getting ready for an award show um, at the Cartier Mansion where Cartier had designed a bracelet um, and Youth AIDS was one of the beneficiaries. And I was getting ready and I was watching television whilst I was getting ready and I saw a movie called The Starter Wife. And I was watching Deborah Messing and, of course, I knew her from Will and Grace. And I just thought to myself, do you know, she would be such a great person to get involved in this issue. I wonder how I could reach her. And so I get to the show, and I think I was chatting to Usher, um, and I felt a little tap on my shoulder. (laughs) And I look around, and it's Deborah Messing. (laughs) And I said, oh, I don't think you understand. (laughs) I was just thinking about you. I'm such a big fan. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm a really big fan. Anyway, when once we had gotten over that, um, it turns out that you had, uh, and you told me the story on the spot where your acting coach uh, had had uh, become HIV positive and that he was one of the biggest influences on your life and that you really wanted to find a platform to give back and to support the issue. And then the rest is history. But I, I just think it was meant to be. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. And... Uh, and she said, do you want to go to Zimbabwe? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, we are, we're just diving right in. We're not even having any kind of conversation in D.C. about it. And the other thing that is most memorable to me was she said, without any irony at all, we're going to save the world. <laughs> right? Yeah, I truly, <laughs> yes, because we but can. she believes it. That's the conviction in your face makes me think everything is going to be okay. We legitimately can have an AIDS-free generation. We are working towards it. I've been doing this for 20 years, seen incredible successes, and we've learned a lot. So I genuinely believe that we can end the pandemic in our lifetime that it takes people to lean in and want to be part of that journey. So can I take us a lot of steps backward for yeah. a minute? I think if I, you know, if I was listening and I heard you speak, I would just think, I'm this woman so brilliant, I could never do what she did. And I think one of the, the greatest parts about you and your story is that you started with a very normal job that had nothing to do with this. And so, like, it would be so great just to kind of hear how you started and and how you transitioned into doing this incredible work. Sure. Well, I, I grew up, had a very simple life. I grew up actually sailing around the world on my father's ship. He's a sea captain. And so I had seen a lot of poverty at a very early age. 
But my normal job was working in marketing. Um, I worked for a, a big advertising agency, and I traveled with that job. I was very good at selling soda pop, bubble gum, toilet paper, and cigarettes, which I wasn't proud of. But I basically designed those marketing campaigns. And when I found myself in Eastern Europe, I was approached by a man who had seen a lot of my work and a lot of the campaigns that I was developing for these fast-moving consumer goods. And he approached me and said, well, why wouldn't you lead a marketing campaign for life? And so I was like, mm, well, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll win an award, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And he really exposed me to the issue. And at the time, I was actually living in Romania. I was dating a Romanian rock star, as you do in <laughs> Romania. Um, and I said to this guy, Michael Holscher, who was actually uh, running PSI there at the time, uh, I said, I can get my world involved in this. I can get my rock star boyfriend. I can get my clients who have got these big marketing budgets and use, you know, private sector marketing techniques to save lives rather than endanger them with cigarettes and bubble gum. And so then very quickly after delving in and doing that campaign, we had increased condom use in Romania by 300%. And so we essentially almost stopped AIDS from coming into Romania. And um, what year was this? This was in 98. Yeah. And I then took a trip to South Africa just on holiday, and immediately the destruction of HIV was a funeral in every corner. Every family had been affected. Were you you there for vacation or work? I was. Okay. I ended up the entire trip going to Silveto and going into into the shanty towns and just really trying to understand what was going on there. And the penny just dropped for me. And I said, this is what I have to do. I have to end AIDS. This is what I have to do. And you were how old? Um, Well, that would be giving my age away, but I don't really mind. (laughs) Um, I was 28 at the time. And at the time, I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go to South Africa and my hand condoms out. That's what I'm going to do. And then I had some words with myself and said, no, no, no. This needs to be global. We need to do this on a on a global basis, and we need to take a private sector approach. And, you know, because what I had done in Romania, which was involve my musician friends, I thought, well, actually, we probably also need help from the celebrity world, really, to get the, to do this in a smart way, to do it in a pragmatic, strategic way. So that's how I really got into this. And then I emigrated to Washington, D.C., to start working with PSI. How did you get to PSI? How did you, I mean, you would, you did that thing for them. And yeah. so did you just reach out and say, hey, I, I want to do this? Yeah, I did the pro bono. It, I did it all pro bono right. uh, for a year. And then I just thought, how cool would this be to do this all over the world? Um, and so Michael, who had recruited me in Romania, said, well, why don't you go and talk to the organization in Washington? And I'm sure they could find something for you to do. But I had this idea of youth aids in my mind because I wanted to make condom use sexy. I wanted to engage uh, public figures and musicians and, and celebrities and helping to 
raise money. And I also wanted to do what I did in advertising. And actually, one of the reasons that Deborah had heard about the campaign is she'd seen the Aldo Fights Aldo. AIDS campaign, yep. where all the celebrities had duct tape over their mouths, which was one of our first big campaigns. And that that raised $5 million wow. in, a, in a few weeks. Wow. And that money was used to invest in male circumcision, which is now one of the biggest prevention tools for HIV. You know, if you are circumcised as a man, you're 60% less likely to contract or, or, or pass on HIV. Wow. And so we were able to use that sort of private sector funding that we raised through this shoe company, basically. And that's how, that's how I even knew about her, because I remember driving down Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. I was shooting Will and & Grace, and I remember looking up and seeing this shoe billboard. I think it was Christian Aguilera. Oh, was it? Yes. Christina Aguilera, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it was, you know, the the hear no evil, e- see, evil, no evil. see no evil, mm-hmm. speak no evil. And there were, you know, three huge music monster stars with the tape over. And it said, and the stigma of HIV. And I remember just being blown away. I just remember thinking, who is the person who figured out how to get a product that has no connection to politics or activism or anything and get these huge stars and yet it all goes to help end the stigma of of having HIV status. What was interesting is the money was raised through dog tags. So we made these dog tags with see, hear, speak on them. And that's, they were $5. And that's how we raised all that money because we sold them through the entire distribution channels of Aldo Shoes. And they took a huge risk, right? Because at at the time it was extremely controversial. Uh, But at the same time, we'd managed to get all these megastars to lend their image. And they sold more shoes during the campaign when there wasn't even a shoe in the in the billboard or any of the advertising. Yeah. They sold more shoes. I think their shoe sales went up 40%. But this is, you know, even with the work that we're doing now, it is, it's, this is the thing I'm always talking to brands about is they don't understand that this is what consumers want. They want to mm-hmm. believe that they're buying into a brand that cares mm-hmm. and it, it, that it's bigger than the product, right? It's an idea. It's a philosophy. It's a way of life. And for you to be able to convince a brand that early, I mean, that was really early. And, and many brands weren't doing this work. It was super early. But today, millennials, you know, millennials really believe in social justice. 100%. Uh, yep. that's the, and that's who's buying these products. Yeah. I think this is also what's amazing as you start speaking to more activists and talking about activism is that people that come from the outside often have so much they can bring to the table. Like thinking about someone like you who had this experience, you were so much more valuable when you entered PSI because of the experience you had had in advertising and, you know, and I, th- I think people don't realize that how many of the skills they already have transfer into any of the causes they may be interested in participating Absolutely. in. And I think it's a big gap um, for NGOs like PSI where, you know, there's lots of epidemiologists or doctors and, and, and traditional people that get involved in this mm-hmm. work. But actually what we really need is talent and resources mm-hmm. that are not normally attractive to an NGO. So somebody with marketing skills, finance skills, legal skills, you know, you can make a huge difference. 
We are going to take a quick break from the conversation with Kate to talk about our new brand partner. We are so excited to introduce you to Sakara, a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. And we get it. Sometimes it's really hard to prepare healthy meals that actually also taste good, especially when you're like me and Deborah, who are, well, not so great at cooking. And lately, we've just been finding it so hard to find the time to make our meals. Sakara's organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients, and they are designed to boost your energy, improve your digestion, and get your skin glowing. The menu of chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners change weekly, so you'll never get bored. They even have something called the sexy cinnamon roll, which is potentially life-changing. Doing it for even a day or two can reset how you think about healthy food. It's delivered fresh anywhere in the U.S. and in really chic, totally recyclable containers. Along with delicious meals, Sakara also has daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition. And to boost results, try the best-selling Metabolism Super Powder, which is an all-natural remedy for bloating, weight gain, and fatigue. I had actually learned about them from Goop, and I have loved them ever since. Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when you go to sakara.com slash dissenters, or you can just enter the word dissenters at checkout to get your 20% off. That's sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash dissenters to get 20% off your first order, sakara.com slash dissenters. Please try it out and let us know what you think. National Geographic Documentary Films will release Rebuilding Paradise from Academy Award-winning director Ron Howard in select theaters as well as virtually this Friday, July 31st. Rebuilding Paradise is a moving story of resilience in the face of tragedy as the community of Paradise, California, a town ravaged by the disastrous campfire in November 2018, comes together to recover what was lost and works together to heal. For more information, please visit www.rebuildingparadise.film. Okay, let's get back to the episode. So what happened when you joined PSI? Is that in D.C. at this point? You moved to D.C.? Yes. Well, at the time, we were only, I think we were in 40 countries, maybe less. So I moved to D.C. and had this idea of youth aids. Literally sat in a cafe with Michael, doodled the logo. And I said, I know what we need. We need Bono. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went on an eight-year quest to get to Bono, which we finally did, and Nancy Pelosi. But I really believed that, you know, PSI was a completely unknown brand, and it was doing this incredible work all over the world. And we needed to put a human face to the the issues that we were working on. And, uh, you know, why not just target the biggest rock star in the world. And so I then met Ashley Judd, um, who's really good friends with Bono, and finally, you know, takes persistence and branding and building the campaign that we built um, and also having some success. The Male Circumcision Project uh, was an incredible success and, of course, attracted the attention of the Gates Foundation and Bill Gates went to see the the pilot that we started in Zambia to try to get African men to get circumcised when circumcision is not in the culture. It's not mm-hmm. in, in African culture. And so everybody said, you will never get African men to 
have a, a circumcision. And actually, Deborah and I— You were there. Yeah. And we, we met the very first person to ever uh, volunteer— to be circumcised. And you have to tell a story. Oh. <laughs> well, they said, okay, well, we're going to watch a circumcision. We want, <laughs> yes. And they said, um, so we had a photographer and a videographer, and we had several people from PSI, but w- which government who came with us that, that USAID. trip? USAID. USAID. Mm-hmm. And I saw this man who ended up being a 32-year-old pharmacist lying on the table, and he looked a little nervous. <laughs> so I went up to him. He had a little hole. And there his, was a hole, yeah. yep, just covering him. And the doctor came in and said, this whole thing is going to take eight minutes total. And I took his hand and I said, I'm right here. And they started the procedure and I sang, um, you are my sunshine to him throughout the procedure. And uh, they they took pictures of it and and I just, I, I saw him being nervous and I just sang to him. And and the funniest thing is seeing the photographs afterwards because, you know, there's this picture from up above and there I am smiling at him and all the men in the room had grimaces on their face and they were like turning away. They couldn't look. And <laughs> Meanwhile, he was extremely proud of himself. Yeah. Really? Yes, because yes, he, he also was. realized the importance of what he was doing because he was also, you know, a trailblazer. You know, you ask, well, how do you become an activist? I mean, he was, he was it. mobilizing his, his, you know, his village. His village. Oh, so asked, he knew the impact of what he was doing. Well, we doing. asked him, why are you doing this? And and he said, this is a way that I can keep my family and my friends and my village safe. And so I want to do it and then be able to go back to the village and say, I did it and I feel fine. And once I become sexually active again, to be able to say it feels exactly the same. And, you know, all the fears that people had about volunteering when they were in their 30s or older, you know, he said, I'm proud that I did this and now I can go and and help my, my community. But if you get back to marketing, if, again, it's all about marketing because when we invested, I think we invested $400,000 in setting up the first clinic in Zambia, we tried everything to get African grown men into the clinic to get circumcised. And, you know, we had campaigns basically saying, this is what you should do for your woman. Mm-hmm. Crickets, no one turned up. Then it was, um, well, actually, uh, you, you know, you won't contract HIV crickets. No one was interested. Then the last campaign that we put out was, you will be a bigger and better lover. And there was a line of people down the street. But more to the mm-hmm. point, you know, it's this, it's this notion of trying things out in, in sub-Saharan Africa and other places to find out, well, what's going to work? And then you leverage... Messaging, messaging, messaging. Well, it, it's also techniques. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, who knew that being circumcised would be an effective tool to, to not contract HIV? and highly effective intervention, we had to try that out. We spent a few hundred thousand dollars doing that. Then Bill came along, made a very large grant, said, please do this in six countries. Now it's one of the leading prevention tools of HIV. But when we were there, we met, you know, one of the chiefs of one of the communities, and he was, how old was he, 71? Yes. 71, 72, and he got circumcised. Mm Mm-hmm. And he he went back because it was against the religion. He ha- was part of a, a community, and he went back and said, 
I, I know this is against our religion, but if we don't do this, we are going to become extinct. We are all going to die out eventually. And so I love my people so much that I want, I wanted to do it and I want you all to do it. And by, by the end of the week, you know, there were like 200 men who, wow. from his, from his village who had already just lined up and did it because he said, I know this is not the narrative of our lives here, but now we have this information. It's going to keep our, our children safe. Mm. Wow. But if you think about it, when, when AIDS came along, it was all about condom use. And everyone said, you'll never get African men to use condoms. You know, it's their only pleasure. And so then, of course, we were able to, to change behavior, get men to use condoms, do all sorts of marketing campaigns in order to do that. But you have to keep evolving with these new innovations in order to... Uh, both keep up with the disease and also a combination of prevention and treatment in order to really end a disease. So that's what it's all about now is like trying these things out and then and then really scaling these interventions across multiple countries and 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 really changing behavior by focusing on what those cultures are and then designing interventions that really will work long term. So could I ask you what might sound like a weird question? I, I find so many people find a barrier to activism as fear and, and the lack of confidence in their ability to deliver on what often feels like a very insurmountable problem. And so there you are, and you're facing AIDS. Do you know, I didn't even think for a second that I would fail. I just really thought to myself, I have to do this. It's like something was driving me. You know, I hadn't been affected by AIDS. I didn't know anyone who had AIDS. But I went to the most beautiful country, South Africa. And, you you know, you cannot go to a country and see the destruction that Deborah and I have seen. I know you've seen too. And not want to do something. It's just absolutely impossible. And And you're right. So many people just don't know what to do. And, you know, during our research for Maverick Collective, we found out that the number one reason that people actually don't get engaged is, first of all, they are just afraid they're going to ask stupid questions. Second of all, they don't know what to do. And so in the end, it becomes overwhelming and they mm -hmm. just don't do it. I put it down to passion. And if you are passionate about something, you can make anything happen. And if you can deliver a message with passion and honesty and transparency, you can engage that person. I think, you know, that that's important. You have to find your, your peeps. You have to find your tribe. Well, one of the, I think, most important lessons I've learned from you, going back, I was terrified. I didn't think I could do it. I just didn't think, and I, I felt like it was so consequential that if I failed, I couldn't live with myself if I failed. And Kate just always said, just speak your experience. Speak your experience because that's honest and that will penetrate everything. Mm -hmm. And it's authentic. You know, you are real. So we went and I had to testify on, on Capitol Hill. And I, I was just shaking. And, she, you know, Kate was right there and she said, 
You are just telling what you saw, what you heard, what you know. Wait, why were you testifying? Because what we do is she takes me to countries uh-huh. and I witness the interventions or the new pilot projects that they're doing. And I come back and I go to the Hill and I share my experience. I tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And then we say, America, can we have $100 million? Mm. And Mitch- they gave $100 million to Zimbabwe. Yeah. Mitch- Who gave $100 million? The USA American ID. government. And, you know, it's not about you. It's about, it's about them. And that, mm. I think that mm-hmm. is the thing that helped me get over my my terror of, I'm not trained for this. I don't yeah. know how to do this. I'm going to fail. I'm not Ashley Judd, who is like literally the most articulate speaker <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. It's about being your true self. You know, when people say, oh, how do you do this? Or are the problems not, not just not so enormous, too enormous? Um, you know, what I said to Deborah was, don't try to be somebody you're not. You know, you are who you are. You're an actress. You can absolutely tell a story like nobody else. And people want to listen to you. Use that power and that talent that you have in the right way. And listen to the experts. Don't try to be a public health expert, Mm -hmm. right? Listen to the experts and we will give you guidance. And that's what Deborah has done so well. I mean, literally after the visit to Zimbabwe, we were able to unlock a major grant. I think because Deborah literally, you know, took the donor aside and I think talked about his daughter and, 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 you know, then suddenly... You know, the, the, the funding was flowing, but it, it's about being, it's just about aligning yourself with the right people and, and being able to listen. It's incredible. It is. It is. You have taken so many trips. Okay, how many countries have you visited? Well, I, in my lifetime, I've visited 122 countries, but um, through my work with PSI, yeah. um, probably 40. 40 yeah. countries. Mm-hmm. And... You have done these trips for malaria, for uh, clean water, for sanitation, sanitation, family planning. That's right. And not just HIV is the point. Mm-hmm. You've done it for everything. Will you please explain what the Maverick Collective is? Yes. So the Maverick Collective is a, is a global uh, philanthropic group that works towards achieving the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, that the UN have put in place. There's 17 goals. We are working on the issues that affect girls and women, which are HIV, sanitation, family planning, maternal health, non-communicable diseases like cervical cancer. And so... Why, why girls and women? Well, if you focus on girls and women, if you really invest in girls, which we haven't been very good at... Well, we, I think I read somewhere that you said two cents of every dollar actually goes to programs for girls. Correct. When you entered the space. Yes. And actually, when I when I first went to the World Economic Forum in Davos, I was one of only 8% of women who even attended the conference. And so I made a pact with myself then that not only are we going to increase and tap into the power group that is women, that we also have to invest more of those dollars in girls and women. If you you invest in a girl's health, you will strengthen families, strengthen communities, strengthen nations, therefore economy, 
will strengthen. We we can work our way out of extreme poverty by just focusing on women. Can you please share the story of how you started Maverick? Well, I had been thinking about the power of women for a really long time. And again, if you focus on the main caregiver of the family, you're going to help the whole family. I was nine and a half months pregnant um, with my daughter. And I'd been thinking a long time about about this need to make this world a better place for girls. And, you know, every girl deserves that. And I just wanted to bring my my daughter into a different world for women. But we knew that I needed to, with the thought of Maverick Collective in mind, this sort of investment for, for girls and women, we needed some really high-powered partners. And so I managed to get a meeting with with Bill Gates and talk to him about the incredible work that him and Melinda and Warren Buffett have done around the Giving Pledge. And I, I asked his opinion on how can we have more of this money flow towards girls and women? And he said, well, you should focus on Next Gen, you know, the, the heirs um, who have a different mindset, and you should focus on the women. And and he said, and you should talk to my wife. <laughs> I said, I would love to, uh, but I don't know her. So could you talk to her? <laughs> um, and so, and then simultaneously went back to the World Economic Forum and built a, a very strong friendship with the Crown Princess of Norway. And then Bill and Melinda really stepped forward and gave us a grant and Melinda became our, our co-chair. What's a meeting with Bill Gates like? What is that? Like, are you nervous? Would you, is, well, like, yes, did I you mean, eat? Did you drink anything? Did you just like, Well, no, well, you? I was very pregnant. So I would have. I would probably <laughs> have done a, a few shots, actually. Um, Bill is absolutely one of the smartest men in the world. Um, it's absolutely impossible to outsmart him or compete with him. And so, you know, I decided to tell some stories and, and hope that, you know, I could outcute him, um, but he <laughs> he must have resonated because he did go back to the foundation and and talk about this. And of course, the the crown princess was very instrumental in in forming a, a relationship with Melinda. And you know, the rest is history. We met him out at the crown princess, and I have long admired Melinda because Melinda had her children. She was. Uh, you know, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And she, you know, was in the sidelines because she was focused on her children. But then she realized that she was going to be so much more effective if she wasn't just giving money out, if she was to use her whole self in her philanthropy. And so we really modeled Maverick Collective on her because she has now leveraged billions and billions of dollars for family planning, which is what she really cares about, and for issues affecting uh, girls and women. Can you explain what family planning means? Family planning is, well, spacing your, your births, having a baby when you when you want to have a baby, and having access to contraception methods. But it's basically, it's it's planning your family, which is where family planning comes from. But we, why do you think that's so important? Why do you think that's such a fundamental right? Well, you know, perhaps I can tell you a story that the, the Crown Princess and I went to India together. And we went to a, a slum dwelling in, in Delhi and met a, a family of eight. And she just kept having children so she could have a boy. 
And um, we actually asked one of the little girls, what, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And, and she said, she said, I'm, I'm too poor to dream. And so, you know, at that point, you know, she said, I'll never go to school. And so if, if we'd have managed to reach that family, we would have been able to provide them access to information, family planning, um, access to contraception, but different methods of contraception. It's not just about handing them pills. Um, they have to be able to choose what's right for their family. You know, making sure that a, a, a young girl of 12 has not had, you know, four children by the time she reach, reaches 18. I mean, that's what we're dealing with. And we have to dramatically increase access to many different forms of contraception that also are culturally relevant to those countries. There's so many barriers um, that we face. And so... If we can really help people to space their families so that girls can get an education and not be sold into marriage or, you know, that they have the control over how they want to live their lives, that's how we're going to, you know, tackle poverty. Otherwise, it's a vicious circle. Yeah, it makes so much sense when you say it. Okay, so I'm sorry, back to Maverick. So starting out, when you and Her Royal Highness went and pitched to women how did you choose the women you were pitching to and mm -hmm. what was the pitch? Mm. We wanted to find like-minded, bold women who genuinely cared about this issue that wanted to go beyond money and go beyond the checkbook, just like Melinda does. Um, and so we carefully selected our founding members. Um, How many? And 14. And each founding member chose with us an issue to get behind. So, you know, we have a lawyer who got behind cervical cancer prevention and treatment. Then we had a lady who got behind gender-based violence prevention, another that got behind sexual reproductive health, uh, pregnancy prevention in Tanzania, and the list goes on. And how we worked with these ladies, uh, the Mavericks, is we co-owned the interventions where PSI is the implementing partner, does the work on the ground, we would work on a promising solution and really allow for our mavericks to really delve in as much as they want to delve in. So simultaneously, they're getting an education. It's like a boot camp in development. We're testing out ideas. Really good example is Kathy's project in, in India, which was a uh, an intervention that we'd heard about where if you if you swab a, a woman's cervix with household white vinegar, you can detect early signs of cervical cancer. It basically just bubbles up, which, you know, costs a few cents to wow. do. That's and so How is that discovered? We had been approached, I think by the CDC or one of the one of the health organizations we partner with. And so but the problem was, was getting traditional funding from the usual sources to invest in this. But we wanted to try it out. And so our Maverick came in with a million dollars over three years. And um, we tested it out. And very, very soon in on the intervention, we realized that this works. Should it bubble up and we detect cervical cancer, it's just a question of freezing off the cancerous cells. And then you're cancer-free. So, wow. so it was a fantastic innovation. We 
thought that this was going to be an innovation for the private sector, but then quickly realized that it was more of a public sector intervention. Because it was a private philanthropist funding this work, we were able to pivot and say, actually, you know what, this is better going to the government so they can then scale the Mm -hmm. innovation in all the public sector clinics. It's now reaching 400 million women across India. And so then the idea, of course, is to take those learnings and scale them in other countries with our goal of ending cervical cancer in our lifetime, which is doable. It's totally doable. That's the maverick way. <laughs> God, I love you so much. I, I just feel like everything's going to be okay when I, I know. talk to you. I know. You know what? We're going to end polio in our lifetime. We will end malaria in our lifetime. It's systematically approaching it. It's systems change. It's behaviors, behavior change. And it's not getting overwhelmed, Right. And really just thinking practically about what are some of the efficient innovations that we can just try out and see if they work, fail fast, pivot, get there in the end, and then scale. And ideally, in the private sector, while getting the government on board as well. So it's really that sort Mm -hmm. of public-private approach to solving these problems. But it's just getting, it's, you know, what this podcast is all about. It's just getting in there, getting in the trenches, seeing what works, and then and then scaling it with influential people like Deborah to tell the story. Doesn't yeah, she, Deborah. Doesn't she make it sound so easy? Yeah, she does. It's amazing. It's, it's crazy. With I'm, the right people, it's easy. It's finding your peeps. I can't stress enough that it's your tribe. But that's kind of what happened with I'm a Voter, right? I mean, like, yes. it really was just the right women back to your story, in in the room with these very similar experiences who were just ready to, yep. to give back. Who had very specific skills that were would help launch this movement. Yeah. And, you know, things that get in the way of progress. Um, and that's By getting why, kidnapped. <laughs> well, yes, there was that little situation. <laughs> but no, I'm— Were I, you kidnapped more I, than once? I, yes, twice, actually. What do you mean? But, like, can you— <laughs> This is a whole podcast all on its own. We should just skim over it. (laughs) And I kind of need, I need to know it. I need to understand it. (laughs) I, in my spare time, I set up an aerobic studio (laughs) in Moscow. (laughs) Just hearing you talking about saving the world and then on the side, you had an aerobic studio. Well, you know what? I was living in Moscow and I wasn't getting any exercise. (laughs) And so I, th- so I thought to myself, I couldn't find a decent aerobics studio. So I just thought, you know, I'm just going to create one myself. It was called Kate's Aerobics. <laughs> and so the first time happened because the business actually just grew. And a lot of the girls who would come to my classes were the girlfriends of the mafiosi. And, you know, everyone has a story like this. So I know it sounds outrageous, but it was just very normal. So that was the first time I was... I got a couple of visits. They threw you in a car. They threw me in a car and took me to the woods. Yeah. And And then what happened? And did you think you were going to be killed? I thought I was going to die. Yeah. And how did you get out of it? I uh, jumped out of the car. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, why did they kidnap you for ransom? No, for money. They wanted a share of the business. And she refused. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and And then the second time, which I don't really talk about that much, but it was in... Uh, there was a 
a big tax situation going on within the advertising agency I was working in in Moscow, which is a big international agency. And I uncovered this sort of espionage situation that was going on. And, and there was all sorts of funny business that I was aware of. And then I was held on. I was actually held for a week on a boat. Um, Wait, and, what do you mean? Like captive? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In Odessa. So in the Ukraine. And, and so, how did you get out? I, um, oh, it's such a long story. <laughs> the reason that I would even mention this is two things. One, I told myself, if I was ever to get out of this situation, I need to make something of my life that counts. And I don't know what it will be, but I will do something. And that's, I think, what started in my brain of becoming an, a, an activist, um, trying to affect the world in some way. Because... Also, I think as an activist, you really have to have that feeling of you can do anything because you do get a lot of no's along the way and, you know, it's hard. So when something like that happens to you, you either fall to pieces um, or you just go for it and not take no for an answer. So I went down that route. Oh, God, I love it. It's insane. It's so, it's so amazing. It was a long time ago. You had mentioned um, prep. Yes. Can you can you explain to us what sure. that is? So prep is a, a relatively new drug that uh, you take, like women take a contraceptive pill every day. This is a pill that prevents uh, you contracting HIV. And so who you have takes to, it? You take you take it every day. A man who? or a woman can take it. Okay. Um, what uh, we are working on a campaign right now, which focuses on men, it disproportionately HIV disproportionately affects, uh, especially gay men, uh, twenty two times more than uh, a heterosexual man. And in America, uh, America has access to it, so the drug is available. You can go and you can buy it and get it from your pharmacist. But in the developing world, it's not widely available. And it is especially necessary for men who have sex with men, MSM, as we call them. And so it is one of those wonder medications that have been developed that can, again, help us to end HIV. Because when you take this pill every day, you will not contract HIV. Wow. Yeah, and so is this available in these countries or it, no? It's not. A, um, we actually have started a campaign in South Africa, a Maverick Collective campaign, um, where we are solely focused on men, and really trying to change the behavior of men to take this pill every day, who are sexually active or high risk, as we call it. And do you provide them the pills? Yes, but ideally, we need in order to sustain um, and develop a market for this drug. We need people to buy it so that we can really build the infrastructure and build the distribution. And so we're right now, we're very focused on getting this drug to Central America, which is right on our border. And what, what is preventing PrEP being readily available outside of the United States? Is it governmental? Well, actually, the pharmaceutical world are not really interested. The margins are too low. So that prevents us from really you know, building the distribution. Like, can we talk about that for a second? What, <sighs> so, I mean, you're talking about Aldo creating a shoe company mm -hmm. for consumers and malls, creating a campaign to 
to help end HIV. And a pharmaceutical for-profit company can't do, can't reduce margins on something like this? Won't. How do they not get more public pressure or pressure um, from government? I, I just don't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, that's, that's almost why PSI has been so successful because what PSI does is, you know, we take products from, say, Procter & Gamble, like the Pure, you've, you've mm-hmm. seen it in action, Deborah, where we will socially market this product. So it's not cause marketing, it's socially marketing. We're selling the product to the people who need it, living in, in poor communities in the developing world. And the reason that we sell it is that it builds a marketplace for this product. We want it to continue when we're long gone. We either want the private sector to take it on or we want the government to take it on. Mm-hmm. So there is a market for it. That's social marketing, where we also then change people's behavior so they know to use the product. Right. And that's exactly what we want to do with PrEP, because it has to be widely available. You know, ideally, it needs to be just in pharmacies. We can't just give it away. There needs to be an infrastructure for it. Um, and so what we do is we buy the drug ourselves and then highly reduce the price of it and then get donor communities to help us to subsidize so that people can actually afford to buy it. But that's the way that it, it, will, it will have to work. And the work that we have to do now, because it's, it's, it's very much like the male circumcision story, we, we have to do all the landscape analysis. We have to understand, okay, well, what's it going to take? What sort of marketing campaigns do right. we need? To, what sort of branding does this product need? So we really have to do, we have to start from ground zero, but it is a wonder drug, and it's it's fail safe, a hundred percent. It's at the tipping point of if we can make this work in a couple of markets, then it's going to be like condoms. It'll it'll go for itself. We want to make it easy for people to get the healthcare that they need. And prep is the next big thing. It's the next big intervention that we that we really want to uh, scale. When I went to Malawi. The pilot project that uh, we were working on was the oral swab in order to find out your your status, whether or not you were HIV positive or negative. And so much of the, the obstacle for getting people to know their status was a lot of people were scared of needles and they didn't want it, so they didn't want to get tested. And they also didn't want to have to go line up at a hospital because then all the other people from the village would see you lining up and then you would be stigmatized. They would be like, why is that person getting tested for HIV? And so they came up with this oral swab that could be done in the home Uh, privately. uh And so they had trained a handful of teenage kids who lived in the community, in the village. And they had backpacks full of these swabs. And so they would go to their neighbors who they've known their whole life. And they would say, come, let me show you. And within 20 minutes, the husband and wife would both know whether or not they were HIV positive or not. Mm. Within 20 minutes. Oh, my God. It's about getting care closer to home. And the problem was is that that village where we were, it was a six-hour walk Mm. to the hospital in mm-hmm. order to get tested. So even if people wanted to get tested, they would have to walk six hours each way. Mm. Actually, I wish there it, was like an emoji for my brain exploding. <laughs> right like, One of the funniest things I think I've seen, uh, I have a memory of Deborah um, when we were on our trip in Zimbabwe. First of all, she offered to go and get 
tested in one of these clinics, which was fantastic because it, you know, that's social mobilization. If people see Deborah getting tested, then it was it, a video. We video breaks the it breaks the, it breaks I the, love you the stigma so much. Yeah. <laughs> But well, you just have to, to say light- what we walked in. Yeah. And what, what did we see? But to, to lighten the, <laughs> the lighten the discussion a little bit, so we walk in and suddenly I hear this huge scream from Deborah, and she's like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! They're showing Will and Grace in this in this clinic." <laughs> I was on the television. <laughs> Stop it! In yeah. Zimbabwe, Stop. with these people waiting to be tested, and did it, they know you were coming and they put it on? No, it was just no. on. It was on. In the waiting room. And it was the Sandra Bernhardt, I got to know, I got to, the singing one. And I'm sitting there, my mind blown. And there were people sitting there just looking at me like, why is she acting that way? Like, they they didn't put it together that I was the the actress on the television. (laughs) And I was like, okay, this is a sign. This is a sign. That's crazy. So she was like, that's why having you be tested on camera and then having it seen it would take the stigma off of getting getting it. Mm. That's incredible. I mean, we, we have made, you know, what's hopeful about HIV is the incredible strides that we've made, right? The whole world is aware of HIV now. People do use condoms. But we're in danger of taking some steps back. And so, you know, having people like Deborah do something like that is, you know, it gets back to the also the male circumcision. The it guy in the village went to get circumcised and, you know, people will follow. So we have to keep going. You know, let's not get complacent about HIV, especially amongst gay men. What is some advice you give to people who who care about something, anything, and want to do more, but don't really know how to start Mm. or are afraid of starting? Well, the first thing is, I think, just get educated. You know, I keep saying this, but but find your people. You know, if, you, if you're curious about things, you know, ask questions. Talk to people who are doing it. Do research. You know, everything is on the Internet now. You, you really, I mean, just watch TED Talks, you know. Getting educated, listening. You know, listening is a skill that's going out of fashion. But ultimately, I think this is all about gut. You know, your gut feeling about, you know, when somebody walks into your life, and you're impressed by them. You know, that's that's your person. That's what happened to me. You know, Michael walked into my life and Tell I was me. extremely impressed with him. And I basically said, I'll follow you anyway. You know, you just tell me what to do. Um, and, you know, that doesn't happen a lot. But when that does happen, I think you have to take notice and uh, and listen and ask ask questions. And don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. You're not a, you are not a professional activist, you know, you, but you can make a difference with what you have your time, your talent, and your treasure. You know, those three things. Well, I would say there's four T's. It's time, talent, treasure, and trust. You know, trust mm. is everything. If you if you mm-hmm. find an, an organization that you're interested in and you, you know, you, you trust them, but, you know, check them out. Look at their annual report. Go look at their audit. You know, find out how much, you know, they, you know, spend on different things in the organization. Go on a trip. Find an organization that inspires you and go and see the work that they do. Spend time with them. Ask questions. I would say volunteer. Um, you know, you, you can make an incredible difference volunteering. Um, but, you know, everyone has $10 to give, right? Everyone, pretty much. 
you know, I know with my organization, you know, we can we can provide a year of life to somebody for, you know, $30. So, look, money doesn't change the world. People do. I read that quote that you gave. That's incredible. But it's true. What are three things that people don't know about you? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hmm. Well, they usually don't know I've been kidnapped. Um, <laughs> Although the story, there's now a few stories out there about that. Um, don't know about me. I'm a, a constant optimist. I believe that everyone that I meet can do something. And that's the thing. Just do something. Completely agree. Yeah. Just we do something. Say. Everyone has the power in them. Everybody. Like, I, when I was growing up, I never would have thought I'd be doing what I'm doing. But it's made me the happiest I've ever been. I wake up in the morning and I cannot wait to get to work. Yeah. And same. it's a gift. It's a real gift. What's your guilty pleasure? Um, my guilty, well, you got me into this. Like, <laughs> this chocolate and quinoa. It's like I'm addicted. <laughs> it's your fault, Deborah. It's your fault. Um, my guilty pleasure, probably shoes. Okay. Yeah. I try to wean myself off them, but uh, they keep creeping back. In fact, I've been. Loving your shoes. Oh, thank you. Do you watch TV? Like, do you watch embarrassing things? Uh, yes. I I love Bravo. Anything. Me too. Yeah. yeah. I know. It's it's not my image. I realize that. But sometimes you just need to switch off and watch Ridiculous. And what's your favorite Bravo show? Um, well, I would probably say The Housewives. Which one? Which one? Um, <laughs> Deborah and I are like, this is important. New York would be my number one. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, Beverly Hills, you, you have to, although Vanderpump's now gone, so I'm not so sure how that's going to work out. Lisa Rinna's there. It's going to be great. Yeah. No, she is. She is. Best. Do you do you watch Bravo too? Uh, oh. You have to, right? Yes. I don't think you're a whole person unless you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <sighs> this has been fun. I feel so hopeful. <laughs> Kate, I... <laughs> like, did, she, did you hear her? She said we're going to... We're like, going to be okay. Yeah. We're definitely going to be okay. We are. It's about finding the win-win. It's always about finding the win-win. Well, I am grateful for your mind and your abilities to bring all of the components together that actually make the needle move. And I will go anywhere in the world with you. Me too. Well, thank you for all that you do. And again, I think it's a testament on finding your power and using it in the best way possible. Yeah. And we've all got different power. Mm -hmm. You know, I know what I'm good at. You know what you're good at. You use it and don't try to be the expert. Find the expert. Amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. And please join us next week as we speak with our amazing friend, Mark Bustos, the humanitarian. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. 
Our music was written by Brady Cohen and images were shot by Justin Campbell.